We're in the gospel according to Ezra and Nehemiah. Again, we're in chapter 7. Chapter 7 is a very transitional, um, intentional place within the book. Uh, Like Ezra, because we did Ezra and Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah is broken down in two parts. Chapters 1 through 6 and kind of 7 focuses on the rebuilding of the walls, the restoration of the walls of Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 13 really deals with the... um, the, the renewal, the, the revitalization of God's people, like this religious reform that's about to take place. And chapter 7 is kind of that transitional chapter in the book. The chapter moves from, from bricks and mortar in, in chapters 1 through 6 to, to, to people and community. This chapter is all about really the repopulation of Jerusalem. In the book of Ezra, if you remember, we witnessed the, the restoration of the altar, the restoration of the temple in Israel, the renewal of, of, of Jerusalem that began in 538 B.C. with King Cyrus, and, and uh, he was the king of Persia, lets the people go back for their second uh, kind of second uh, return um, to, to back to the land. But now we're in 445 B.C., almost 100 years later, and I think it's important that we recognize and continue point out the fact or the reality that as important as the walls are, as important as the walls were, it really isn't about walls, it really isn't about temples, it's not really about altars. The book's ultimately about Jesus. That's all we got. That's all we need. Nehemiah, great man, great leadership skills, learned how to handle tough jobs with grace and truth, but it was Jesus who came full of grace and truth, right? It was God who sent Nehemiah to the restoration or to bring restoration to the city of Jerusalem, but it was God the Father who sent God the Son, Jesus Christ, to restore the broken and alienated lives. Nehemiah points to the reality that the Lord Jesus Christ was sent to renew, to rebuild, and to restore something that had been in ruins. Our lives. Separated from God. And God did that by sending His Son to bring back a relationship that had once been severed. It was Nehemiah that heard about the gates that had been destroyed and, and the walls had been down and the temple destroyed and, and they were in great trouble and shame. And Nehemiah, we learn in chapter 1 that when he heard about that, he sat down and he wept over it. But it was Jesus Christ on that first Palm Sunday. Today is Palm Sunday. Today is the day in which we celebrate what is called the triumphal entry. It is the week before Jesus is being crucified. He enters into Jerusalem. He comes down the long Mount of Olives looking over a ridge about 2,700 feet east of the city, separated from Jerusalem by the Kindred Valley. And as he walks along that, 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 that ridge and he comes and he looks at Jerusalem and, and everyone sees this glorious city, this, this beauty, this splendor, this, this security, and they, and they spread their coats and they spread their palm branches on the ground and Jesus comes walking on a donkey, uh, excuse me, riding on a donkey. Everyone breaks into the shout, Hosanna, remember the story? Hosanna, Hosanna, save us now, it means. The son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, save us now, O Lord, in the highest. Soon, within days, they're going to be yelling, crucify him. Jesus looks out over Jerusalem during that triumphal entry 
And maybe he, maybe he knew. He, I'm sure he did. And a week later, they'd be yelling, crucify him. But he looks out over the city. He sees their sin. He sees their rebellion. And he sees their destruction, their rejection of the Christ, the rejection of the Messiah. And he weeps over the city. Like Nehemiah, Jesus weeps over the brokenness of the lives of people. But Jesus came loving us in spite of our sin. Wept over our lost condition. Nehemiah was called by God to rise up and to build. And he called the people to build with him. But it was Jesus who calls his disciples to pick up their cross and follow him. To participate in the work of the gospel. The God's kingdom at work through the church. Nehemiah had opposition from within. As the people of God cared more about, we saw that last week or two weeks ago, Bill preached on it. They cared more about their own safety, their own security, their own glory than the work of God, than the glory of God. The Bible says that Jesus came to his own and his own what? Knew him not. They rejected him, his own people. His disciples cared more about their lives. His disciples cared more about their safety on that dark night. They abandoned the Lord. Nehemiah also faced opposition from outside. We saw that last week. His own people, Ricky did a great job talking about how he was opposed. And they, and they, and they, and they, they, they set up this ambush to capture Nehemiah or to stop the walls from being built. And we see that. We see, jo, uh, what do we see? We see Judas setting up an ambush for Jesus as he, as he comes into the garden and he's there with his disciples. The, uh, the robbers and, excuse me, the armed soldiers come and they take Jesus. See, all this is about Jesus. All this is about Jesus. It points to Jesus. And in chapter 6, verse 15 of Nehemiah, it says the wall was finished. Nehemiah accomplished his great and unbelievable task. Right? A few miles in circumference, this wall, maybe 15, 20 feet high, three, four, five feet thick, broken down over 140 years, it's done in 52 days. 52 days. And now with the temple rebuilt, the wall's done, Nehemiah initiates a covenant renewal pointing to the way Jesus would come and replace the temple. He provides the people with security And he initiates the new covenant. Nehemiah is about rebuilding, restoring, and now he's in this renewal, revitalization stage. But it points to Jesus and the new covenant. And what I love about Nehemiah as we look at chapter 7, after completing the task, after surveying the condition, after being criticized by those outside, being, you know, messed with from the inside, he's not done. He doesn't just say, I'm done, I quit, I had one task to do, uh, let, let, me, let me walk away from this. No, he's not done. He, he, he transitions, as I said, from rocks and stones to people, to community. Because that's what it's about. He's like, I have life left in me. I'm not done. I'm not done with the task. And, and some of us may be in that place where God has called us to do certain things, and now we're just sitting idly by saying, all right, I've done my task. But family, I'm here to tell you, as long as you're alive in this room, and I hope all of you are, there are things for God, there are things that God wants you to do. He has gifted you, he has given you talents, he has given you treasures, he's given you abilities, so that you would be on mission with him, sharing, declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ, which brings us to our text. 
Our text this morning is another Jerusalem phone book. If you just take a look, you'll see a lot of names, a lot of numbers. We're going to go through each one very carefully. We want the snow to melt. So Nehemiah finished his job, his job, and immediately what we see in chapter 7 is that Nehemiah is now planning for the future. He's not satisfied with the walls being up, that's it, or the, the doors being rebuilt and hung. He has work to do, and he wants to press on. And Nehemiah wants to now inhabit Jerusalem. If you remember from last week, the walls are being built. The walls are there for security, for safety. And now there needs to be, what, repopulation. And I believe also Nehemiah wants to secure the city against attacks. We saw that last week, again, with Sanballat and and Tobiah. So now what is Nehemiah going to do? That's where we're at. So what? The building's done. So what? So let's look at it under three headings. Number one, he enlisted leaders. Look at with me at verses one and two. The wall had been built. I had set up the doors, right? He didn't do it all, but, you know, we had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed. I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was more faithful and God-fearing man than many, okay? So it's astounding. 52 days, the wall's done, the whole wall program done in less than two months, but one problem remained. Who's going to live in the city? Who, who's going to be there to defend against its attack? Look at verse 4 quickly. It says, The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few. No houses have not been built. So it, it's a ghost town. Walls are done, it's secure, but it's somewhat empty. Now, as Nehemiah is preparing for the future, the, the work that God has for him, the first thing he does is he enlists leaders, which would be the right thing to do, the smart thing to do. But notice what he does. He says he, he, he appoints the gatekeepers. Now, gatekeepers are usually the ones that keep the gate at the temple. So he says, listen, you gatekeepers, you know about gates, you know about locks. It's sort of like me being, being a prison guard, I know about locks. Someone's like, can you get that lock? I know locks. Go now and go, and I want you to go and secure the gates to the city. So leave the temple area, but go to the city, front of the gate, and, and keep watch over the gate. Put them in charge of the gates. Okay, that makes sense. You know a lock, you know the gates, go protect the gates. But what is rather curious, and most commentators point out, is that he appoints the singers, look at that, and the Levites, whose job it was to assist the worship, to assist the priest over at the temple uh, as they sacrifice and, and do their worship. So why send the band to the gate? Just so you know, band, you never know what you might be asked of you. Right? Maybe they just, you know, Ricky's like, I know that story. I'm, I'm a, I pinch it in all different ways. Right? You never know. Maybe the band, you know, they can't be left alone very long. You never know what they may get their hands into. I don't know. I know I better be careful because I'm going to call the band up and nobody will show. I'll be all by myself. You don't want that. Right? Maybe it was to, I, we don't know. Maybe they're in trouble. Uh, maybe they, you know, they just, let's send them over there. I don't know this for sure. This is conjecture. I know I don't do it often, but I'm going to. Maybe it was. Maybe they wanted to send the band, the worshipers, the singers, to the gate. So that when people are coming in and out of the gate, they would recognize that the priority in this city is worship. It's not just at the temple. that It's not just the temple that was set apart. It was... It was the city that was set apart from sin and dedicated to God. The whole city. 
That worship wasn't just done in a certain place at a certain time, 10 o'clock, King's Chapel, on Sunday morning. Worship was to be done in the entirety of the city, day and night, work and play, home or at the workplace, where it would be. This shouldn't surprise us. We saw over and over that the priority of worship is something that God is drawing Nehemiah back to, drawing Ezra back to constantly in this book, the priority of worship. And how better to send that signal than to send the musicians and the assistants of the priest to the gate so that when people come out, maybe, just maybe, a song will break out. God forbid that I should glory save in Christ the Son of God. Hey, Jim, how you doing? Everything going well with the family? Everybody good? Right? Him who sought me, him who bought me. Hey, Charlie, how are the kids? Wash me in his blood. Everything going all right? Yeah. And as they're coming in and out of the city, they're, 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 they're singing. It's, it's about worship. Jerusalem's set apart for God. I want everybody to know that. Look what he does. He, he appoints two people. Han and I, my brother, we met him before. Remember Han and I in chapter 1 of Nehemiah? He's the one that left Jerusalem in that covert operation. He came back to Susa from Jerusalem and said to his brother, Nehemiah, the walls are down. We're in shame. The people are in trouble. He's that guy. He could be his natural brother. We don't know. He could be just a fellow Jew. We don't know. But that's the guy. And what we see here is Nehemiah again exercising strong leadership skills. Nehemiah understands that once the job that he had before him was completed and he was to carry on, he had to set up leadership over the task that needed to be done, right? He realizes great success could be followed by great failure. He understood the success or failure of any enterprise, be it spiritual or secular, many times depends on the weakness and the strength of its leadership. Right? So these two men are like the cops, you know, like, like the mayor and the chief of police. What does he say about them? What does he say about Hanani and Hananiah? That they were absolutely positive guys. Yay, big smiles. They were charismatic. They were, they were influential. They were flashy. They were gifted. They were so well-spoken. They, 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 you know, they could charm the pants off anybody. Nope. He says they were what? Faithful men. I love that. They were faithful men. That's the word integrity. They were faithful men and they were fearful men. They were faithful, they had integrity, and yet they also feared the Lord. That word of faithfulness can be integrity. It's the word emet in the Hebrew. It, It talks about truth. It talks about dependability, honesty. It's been used of God, actually, in Genesis 24. It says that God was emet, God was faithful, when he led Abraham's servant to find the right wife for Isaac. It's been said, and maybe you've heard this, that integrity is, the definition of integrity is doing what's right, living right, when no one else sees it. Living right, doing right, when no one else is around. Integrity. These men were integrity. Those say they fear God. Followers of Christ fear and tremble before the Lord, not because God is our enemy, but because he saved us from his wrath through the gospel. We stand on the brink of, of the grand canyon of his holiness, his justice, his mercy, his grace, his unspeakable glory and wonder. 
wobbling knees, hands trembling, overcome with worship at the depth of his majesty. We're not wrought with worry that we might fall into the abyss, but we praise him and give him reverence because he snatched us from it. There's the difference. Psalm 2, serve the Lord with fear. Serve the Lord and rejoice with trembling. You see, the fear of the Lord is to be a fountain that brings rejoicing and great joy. Proper biblical fear recognizes who God is according to the scripture, what he has done, what he will do in the future. And for those who embrace the cross, it brings joy, it brings peace, it brings delight, it brings reverence, it brings encouragement. Negative fear, negative fear, terrorizing fear, is when you are afraid of something that is dominating you, but it is also torturing you, tormenting you. There's the difference. There's the difference. The fear of the Lord is being dominated and controlled and captivated, but under his control. The one who loves you, the one who died for you, the one who cares about you, the one who saved you, the one who is good, because God is good. Now listen, just, let's just bring some application to what it means to fear the Lord. Why these men stood out and they feared the Lord. When we sin, when we, whether it's lust, greed, whether it's anger, whether it's unforgiveness, whether it's bitterness, whatever the sin is, the reason that we are continuing in that because that thing, whatever we are doing, it has more awe in our life than God does. It has the awe of God. We don't treasure it. We treasure it more than God, finding it more wonderful, pleasurable than the gospel. It captivates us more than God. That's why we're afraid. And we bow down, we worship, it's called idolatry. It's got us in its grip and it's terrorizing, it torments us. But when the fear of the Lord captures our hearts, then we begin to reorient everything in life around his mercy, his grace, his covenant kindness, his awesomeness, his majesty. And then the one who, who has domination over us, the one who loves us, and we center our relationships around him. And then everything we do, all the references, all the reverence in our life is centered, relationships and all, around his glory, his majesty, his splendor. That's what it means to fear the Lord. And because living in fear really does center our life around it, it's not just the beginning of wisdom, it is it's an absolutely essential attribute, character, if we want to follow the will and the ways of God. Nehemiah saw that these men were faithful. They were dependable. They were the go-to guys. They were the ones that were there. They were the ones that was doing right when no one was around. But Nehemiah also saw them, this fear of the Lord, this dominating, controlling aspect of their lives about God's wonder, glory, and majesty, and their lives flowed out of the fear of the Lord. Their lives flowed in such a way that their decisions, that their, that their, 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 their walk, their, their lives, their decisions were centered around the glory of God. And he recognized that. He said, I want those guys. Verse 3, and I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they were still standing guard, let them shut the bar, the doors, appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some of their guard posts and some in the front of their home. So I want them in both places. Now, if you're studying along with me, especially a community group leaders, you're reading some commentaries, you're going to read that that passage in Scripture can be taken in the Hebrew in, in a couple of ways. Let me just give it to you real quickly. One, what Nehemiah is saying is that 
Don't come into the city until the sun is hot. ESV picks that up. Let not the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot. So wait till the midday. Why? Well, we don't know. Maybe he wanted to, you know, maybe he wanted the morning time so they, people can serve one another and kind of work on the inhabitants of Jerusalem first. And then midday, open the gates and let people into the city. That could be it. The other interpretation could mean that he's like, listen, because look what it says. You know in the morning, let's concentrate on being the people of God. No, excuse me. It says, while they were still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. So one could be, Doors stay closed until midday or close the door at midday because it's siesta time. It's, it's quiet down. We're having lunch. The sun is hot. Everyone has been working all morning. It's time for a two. They do that in Europe. Um, we're going to start implementing that here around 2 o'clock. We're just going to take naps. Um, Rick's like, yeah, all right. No. So that could be it. But I think the interpretation, you'll read these in the commentaries. And you guys can talk about it in community groups. I think the interpretation is somewhat rather simple. It's wait till the sun is all the way up, then open the gate, and right before the sun is all the way down, close the gate. So the gate of the city, which protects the city, is only open when you could see clearly the sun is up, we can see the traffic coming in and out, we can keep watch, we can you know, make sure everything is going well, and then close the gate, don't wait till the last minute, so while the sun is still up, close it before it gets dark. The reason why I hold to that interpretation is look at the next verse. It says right there in chapter 7 that they were to, they put guards out. You see that? They put guards out. He said, I want you to put guards both in, you know, in the, in the guard posts and then in some people's homes. So this really had to do not with seclusion, not with siesta, but with protection. So it says, open the gates, close the gates, and put some guards out. These guys were all the retired cops, right, driving in their little cars, the neighborhood watch guys. They keep in watch of the city. Nehemiah's like, listen, you know, we just got this place built. We have some enemies. Let's get the gate open and closed at the right time. And you know what? Let's put some guards out there. Get the retired law enforcement guys. Give them a fake badge. Give them a fake gun. No bullets. But let them go and make sure everything goes well. Set up watch. So he enlisted leaders, and then he wants people to watch. And, and family, let me say this. We need each other. We need watchmen. We need guards. We need people to speak into our life to speak truth to us. We need protection. We need to, to, to make sure that we are living in such a way and having building relationships in such a way that when there's a blind spot, when there's an opening in the wall, when there's an opportunity for the enemy to come in, I have a brother or sister to step up and speak. Pastors are called to protect as well as provide. There needs, to be, there needs to be that protection. That's what Nehemiah does. Look what he does secondly. He establishes relationships and community. Verse 4. The city was wide and large. People within it were few. No houses had been built. Verse 5. Then, then my God put it in my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled in genealogies. And I found the book of genealogy of those who came up at first. And I found written in it, in verse 6, these were the people of the providence who came up out of the captivity of those exiles from Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. We covered that already. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. Verse 7. They came with Zerubbabel. He's talking about Ezra 1. Yeshua, Nehemiah, different Nehemiah. Azariah, Nehemiah, Nehemani. 
Nehemani, sounds like a perfume, a cologne, Nehemani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispereth, Bigva, Nahum, Bena, the number of the men of the people of Israel. Verse 8. I'm going to stop there. You don't want me to read all that. Believe me. See all the names, all the numbers. So he's, in, it, it, he's like, look, we need to inhabit the city. And it's been, it's been, you know, broken down for a long time. But there needs to be some growth here. And look what he does. First thing he does is he says, God put it in my heart. It was God who put it in my heart to call the nobles. I love that about Nehemiah. If you read the book of Nehemiah, you will know that Nehemiah is a man of prayer. Nehemiah is a man of scripture. Nehemiah is a man who, who listens, who responds, who waits, who yields to the work of the spirit of God. He wants to hear from the Lord. That, that's Nehemiah. He, he, he has a burden for the city. He knows what needs to be done. But he doesn't jump ahead, he doesn't wait behind, he waits on the Lord. And he waits for the Spirit, and he waits for the direction in which God gives him. And he says, God, put it into my heart. Okay? Now, of course, we have to be careful. It could be a bad burger you ate. But Nehemiah is waiting on the Lord. And you see, that's what he does. He says, I want to wait. And then secondly, look what he does. He finds a genealogical record of those who had returned. So now he has a list to go by. He's like, let's pull out the old list. Let's discover who has been here before and let's begin with what we know to be true and who the true inhabitants of Jerusalem should be as the people of God come back and to, you know, it, to repopulate Jerusalem. Look down at verse 61. It was important. He says, the following were there who came up from Tel Milah, Tel Hasha, Cherub, Adon, and Immer that they would not prove they could not prove their father's house nor their descent whether they belonged to Israel. So it was important. It was important to know who true Israel was. Who was the true covenant people? Now once again, if you do in study Ezra 2 and Nehemiah 7, if you look at the lists, there are somewhat different, minor differences. And liberal theologians who like to bash the scripture, who like to say, oh, look, look what we got. We have differences in the Bible. There's no way to understand it. Throw the whole Bible out. We, you know, they, they question the authority and the infallibility of scripture. You have a list in chapter 2, a list in chapter 7. Let, let me just say hogwash. I know that's not a very theological there, there, there's a, a ton of reasons why that may be true. Maybe the list was taken in Babylon in Ezra 2, and then when they got to Jerusalem, they redid the list, or they, they said, all right, who actually made it? Maybe some people stayed longer. Maybe they said, look, we'll meet you in Jerusalem. When we get there, we'll get there, but I have a sick aunt, I have a sick grandma. You know, there could be a thousand different reasons. Maybe people were born later on, they were added. To, I mean, there's, there's a ton of reasons of the possibilities why the numbers were different. One thing I know for sure, family, and you can know this for sure, and I want to leave this with you as we leave this point. Jesus Christ, our good God and Savior, believed in the infallibility and authority of the Old Testament. Settles it for me. If Jesus believed it, I believe it. That's where I'm at with this. So he has, he's like, look, we need to know who it is, who belongs to the true covenant people of God. We do that here, don't we? Some of you are coming for church membership. Some of you have already been in church membership. Some of you are considering church membership. When we meet together, we want to know one thing. Do you know, do you love 
Jesus? Do you have a personal relationship? Have you been, been born of his spirit? Do you understand the gospel have a relationship with Jesus Christ? That's what we want to know. So let me ask all of you here this morning. Have you joined the true people of God? By repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ as your only Lord, the only Savior of the world. Have you recognized that he's the creator, you're sinful, that's a problem. That makes a problem for a relationship. And the good news is that what Jesus did, he died on the cross, he rose from the dead, we turned from our sins, we trust in him, and then you too can be part of the covenant people of God. It's through the gospel, it's through the cross that we have a relationship with Almighty God. There is no other way. I don't care what they teach you in school, I don't care what you've been taught at another church, there's one way, he said, I'm the way, singular and exclusive, the truth, singular and exclusive, and the life, singular and exclusive to the Father, period. That's it. So it's not just the people of God, because that's what he's trying to do, but look down with me at verse 65. We saw this in Ezra. It says, These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arrive. So in other words, we're not really sure if you are, we're not really, you know what? Priest is really important. If you're not a priest, things go bad. You don't want to walk into the Holy of Holies if you're not a priest, right? Your life will end. So he's like, look, we're not really sure about you. We don't have genealogical records. We're not really positive. Let's wait till the priests come with this, with this Urim and, and Thummim. Okay, that's really, I looked it up because I wasn't 100% sure either, to be honest. It means light and perfections in the Hebrew. It, it's a stone or a jewel the priest would hold in his, his breastplate, which is called an um, uh, ephod. It was a, a garment that he wore. And the priest would take it out and it was almost sort of like crap shooting. It would be like almost like dice. And it would say, Lord, show us. And it was a way in which they knew the will of God in the Old Testament. We have the Spirit of God today, right? And the Scripture. But in those days, that's what they did. In fact, David said, bring out the priest. I'm, I'm trying to know in First Samuel what the will of God is. So that's the way the Old Testament did it. And what this reminds me of, and I want to, you know, just share this with you, is it's they're writing the list of names. We see this community. We see who's come. We see who's been there before. It reminds me of like the Vietnam Wall or, or the World War I or World War II. We see the names, those embedded for, for, you know, forever on the wall. These are the men and women who served this military, our country, who gave it all so that we can have our freedom. That's what this list reminds me of. It was Warren Worsby who said, the important thing is not to count the people, but that people count. I love that. It's not that important to count the people, but that people count. You see, these people left the comfortable, left the cozy in Babylon. They were there for 100 years. Their families and their grandfathers probably were there in Babylon. They, 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 were, they, 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 they laid their life on the line and left the comfortable and went 800 miles to a city that was destroyed, to some uncertainty. You know, would you be willing to do that? Would we as Christians give up the comfortable to go on mission? Would you, would you settle for that which is not so cozy? to go to a foreign land, to go to another place so that others can hear the gospel, so that others can see the gospel, so that others will come to know Jesus and have their sins forgiven. That's what they're doing. Let me ask you, if, if there was a genealogy list of those in covenant relationship with God, 
would your name be on it? That's a question. 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourself. See whether you're not in the faith. Paul says, examine yourself. Or, or do you not realize that this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? He says, but I hope that you will find out that we have not failed the test. That's for you to decide. That's between you and Jesus. Do you know him? Do you love him? Are you, are you simply settling in the cushy? Or are you willing to step out in faith and, and trust and love Christ? One last thing. We'll move into our last point. Nehemiah is building, repopulating Jerusalem. Nehemiah is all about community at this point. And let me make this perfectly clear, and I think the Bible is perfectly clear. God calls and God forms community not simply so that we have each other. God calls, God forms community for his glory. So that we as a people can be sent into a world declaring and demonstrating the gospel for his glory. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament calls God's people salt and light. It's not a New Testament word. Okay, God has always called the people together, both Old Testament Israel, New Testament church, to be sent into the world as salt and light. There's an article by Walter Kaiser. He's an Old Testament scholar. It's an article, if you look it up on the internet, you can. It's called The Great Commission of the Old Testament. He goes on to show that from Abraham, excuse me, from Adam to Abraham to David to, to, to the priests, all the way through the Old Testament, God has been declaring and demonstrating through these people his glory, about his mission. That the Old Testament has its own great commission. It wasn't something new in Matthew 28. At the end of the article, he writes this, God had never elected Israel only to be engrossed in navel gazing, looking in only to receive the blessing for herself. She had been called and elected for service onto the nations of the earth, certainly with Abraham and then most decisively with Moses. The stage had been set for a whole nation to be involved in a ministry of being priests and witnesses to all the people of the earth. The covenant that David received was not to be selfishly squandered on themselves, but it was to be a charter for all humanity. That some, excuse me, that same point was affirmed in Isaiah as he again repeated this truth. It was to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, end quote. Jesus said, we are light, we are salt. We, it's plural in Matthew. You're not this salt granular all by yourself. You're not this little light bulb, this little light of mine. He's talking to the church. He's talking to the community. He's talking to brothers and sisters just like us. You are light, you are salt. And when Jesus came, listen, ushering in the kingdom, he fed the poor, he cared for the lonely, he ministered to the broken, he changed the world by love and serving others. So when we come into the kingdom of God by the gospel, when Christ is king over us, we ought to do the same things. Very simple. The church living under King Jesus is called to live in such a way that the world gets a glimpse of what the kingdom of God will be like when Jesus finally comes and sets up his eternal kingdom. 
And the community of God's people living out the gospel with each other means forgiving one another, loving one another, caring for one another, serving for one another, sharing life together. Even when there is sin, because sin makes a mess of relationships, we're repenting, we're forgiving, and we're caring for one another. And then little by little, as God's renovating and renewing the community that reflects the good gospel in which they proclaim, that is gospel communities. And then when that happens... Our hope, family, is that people come in here on Sunday morning and sense God's love. People see the communities that are gathered, not just here on Sunday morning, but throughout our capital district. They see people living life together, serving one another, serving their communities. They get a glimpse of the glory, majesty, grace, kindness of our God. And then our hope, prayerfully, is that they join community so that their sins can be forgiven. They come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And let me tell you, family, that gives him great glory. That gives him great glory. When we are loving, caring, serving one another and the world so that they see Christ, we declare the gospel, they repent of their sins, they're forgiven of their sins, God gets glory. How great and awesome and wonderful and majestic and terrific and and gracious he is. He gets the glory. So, enlisted leaders, all about community, and then finally, look, encourage giving, verse 70. Now, some of the heads of the father's house gave the work. Governors gave the treasury 1,000 directs of gold, 50 basins, 30 priest garments, 500 minus of silver. Some of the heads of the family's houses gave the treasury of the work of 20,000 directs of gold, 2,200 minus of silver, 72, verse 72. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 directs of gold, 2,000 minus of silver, 67 priest garments, Verse 73, so the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, all of Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. So what you see, is just like in America, there's a disaster in a city. People are being generous with their money, looking to rebuild the city. They're pouring money and, and they're giving toward the work of God. Family, that's why we do not have fundraisers here at King's Chapel to pay the bills, right? We don't have spaghetti dinners, although... Maybe if I sold some meatballs, maybe we could make some money. I don't know. But we don't do that. God's people are called to give to God's work. Right? We're not like that TV evangelist who's shouting and sweating with his handkerchief, right? And his wife looks like she got shot with a paintball gun with the big eyes. You know what I'm saying? We don't do that. But, but quite honestly, what you do with your money is a very good indicator of where your heart is, where your relationship with Jesus Christ is. And if you say, no, that's not true, my wallet's my own, my money's my own, listen to Jesus. He said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So we don't shy from talking about money here, our treasures, our talents. We don't shy away from it. We address the issue when it comes up in Scripture. That's why we do expository preaching. And here's giving. People are giving. There are abuses in the world. I get that. There are pastors who claim all kinds of nonsense, you know, for the glory of almighty dollar. I get that. In fact, that's one of the guy's names. He's crazy. You see him, he wanted a $30 million jet. Anybody see that? CeeLo Dollar, what's his name? Yeah, that guy. Family, 5000 a piece, I can get a jet. I mean, who would say, I'm in. I mean, like, you guys, shoot me, take me out back. That's crazy, but anyway. <laughs> but it does mean we need to take finances seriously. So there's a lot to say about the subject. I'm not going to. We're closing up. But I just want to say this. King's Chapel is about the centrality of the gospel. We're a gospel-centered church. Everything we do, all that we say and do, is centered around Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, no, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 
Paul addresses their generosity. They've been very generous. He says, look, I want you to give, as you've been given to the advancement of the gospel, you've given a lot to me, I want you to give uh, from your heart, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, but a a cheerful giver. Chapter 9, you know that verse. But in verse 11, he says to them, so that you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service, this generous giving, is not only supplying the saints, the needs of the saints, but it also overflowing in many thanksgiving to God. So in other words, that's what he's saying. You have given generously, you have given much, and when all is said and done, needs are being met, but it is going to praise, it's going to uh, erupt in the praise of God and thanksgiving of God, okay? But chapter goes on and says one more thing in verse 13 of chapter 9. Now listen to this. He says, by their approval of this service, by the fact that you have been given generously the financial support, they will glorify God because of your submission, Corinthian church, your submission, your willingness, your submission, that comes from your confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's the motive? Where is it coming from? The confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All the generosity of your contribution for them and for others. This is what he's saying. He could have said, I'm an apostle, give because I'm telling you, but he doesn't. He says, you know the wealth, you know the treasure that you have received in the gospel and therefore give generously. That's what he's saying. He's encouraged to give and to tithe, not because they have to, but because of the surpassing riches, the surpassing riches that we've received in the gospel, all our sins, all the wrath we deserve has been poured out on Jesus. And instead of hell and eternal torment, we received eternal life, eternal love in the presence of God, riches beyond comprehension. I believe Nehemiah, was able to raise, some people say, five, ten million dollars because the people recognized Nehemiah made sure that it was God who redeemed them from Babylon. It was God who renewed them from their rubble and out of gracious, grateful hearts of his redemption and his restitution, God restores them that they gave. Okay, that's what I believe. I think he was able to do all that because he knew it was for God's glory and it was for God honoring purposes and here's the principle what you give financially yeah i'm going to pull a little bit i'm going to push is impermeably connected to what you value in other words there's no wiggle room what you do with your money what you do with your finances directly linked to what you care about to what you value like the man who's gone for three weeks from his home he flies into the city and he immediately goes to the mall because he wants to bring back his wife something very nice hasn't seen his wife in a long time so he goes up to the cosmetic counter and he asks the lady, he says, I need some perfume. She takes out a bottle of perfume. She says, here you go, how much? $75. Like, ah, that's a little bit much. She says, okay, okay. She breaks out another bottle, smaller bottle, about $30. He's like, ah, that's still a little bit too much. So she's a little annoyed at this point. She pulls out this tiny little bottle of perfume. How about this for your wife? Ah, I, I was looking for something that was really cheap. He said, Okay. She grabbed them and handed him a mirror. <laughs> you get that going home. What you value is where you put them, your money. So giving to the rebuilding of God's people for his glory and mission can only be done when we completely understand the riches of the gospel. 
I could, we could make everyone give a percentage. We talk about tithing and covenant membership, but the reality is it flows from the riches of Christ. For he who knew no sin became sin so that we may become the righteousness of God. It was the riches, it says in 2 Corinthians as well, that he gave up so that we can be rich in him. Right? That's the reality of it. That's the reality of it. So let us, let us end here. Let, let me say this as we close. Give me two more minutes of your, of your mind. The completion of the temple points to the finished work of Jesus Christ. The finished work of the temple points to the finished work of Christ. The temple and the walls are temporary. They are perishable. What it points to is that which is eternal and imperishable. God dwelt among his people in Jerusalem. God set up his house in such a way that he showed that he is holy, we are not. He is perfect, we are sinful. And without sacrifices, without entering in through the blood, there is no way to come into God's presence. There must be atonement. But the blood sacrifices ceased because Christ Jesus fulfilled all they were appointed to. He is the final, unrepeatable sacrifice for sins. Christ himself, when he was perfect all his life, and yet when he died on the cross, the Bible says he became sin. He became that atonement by the Father's predetermined and foreknowledge, and his plan was to crucify his son for our sin. Christ had to die. There was no other way. No other way that this death points to the truth and the reality that the temple now, the torn veil, now we have access into the presence of God. The veil itself that separated the holiness of God and the sinful man has been torn through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Hebrews says we have confidence to enter into the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened up through the curtain which is his body. He entered once and for all into the holy place by the means of his blood, securing an eternal redemption. Even the, the temple work of the priest is done away with, who Jesus, the Bible says, is an eternal priest. He will never die again. Do you understand that? Let's end exactly where we started. Chapter 6, verse 15. So the wall was finished. Jesus points to the reality in which Nehemiah Nehemiah points to the reality in which Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. It is finished. Jesus sent by the Father on mission to rebuild and renew a wall. But Jesus was sent to rebuild and renew people, to forgive us of our sins. He said the same thing as Nehemiah. I did my mission. I completed my task. It is finished. I have made the way for salvation possible. Jesus breathes his last, dies a grueling death, pays the penalty for our sins. Three days later, he rises from the dead, victorious over sin, death, and hell. And he says to you and to me and to all people who are sinful and broken, come, I died, I rose, it is finished. See, Nehemiah is about Jesus. Nehemiah points to the reality that the temple's not only done, but it points to the temple which Jesus said, in my body, three days, he said, destroy this temple three days, it'll rise again. It was his body he was talking to. Jesus points to the reality that when the wall was finished, that he finished the work on the cross of Calvary and dying for your sins. No more sin payment needed. Do you know that? Are you, have you considered the cross, the gospel, in your life, in your mission? 
why you're here? Have you considered the cross, the gospel, in your giving? Does it reflect the truth of the riches of Christ? Have you considered the cross, the gospel, at the center of all that you do? His awesomeness, his grace, his mercy takes center stage in all that you say and all that you do. I pray, we'll pray, we'll respond. As we sing to Jesus, he's alive. As we respond, what is God speaking to your heart? What is it you need to say amen? Yes, Lord, I will do that. Maybe becoming a Christian for the first time, just repenting of your sins, recognizing that you need a Savior. He died for you, he rose for you. Maybe it's a way of saying there's part of me, you know what, I've been holding back, I need to let go and give it all to Jesus today. Whatever it may be. Whatever the Spirit of God leads you, as the band comes up, I pray that you will be obedient to Christ. Father, thank you for how Nehemiah just points to the reality of Christ. How this rebuilding of the temple, this rebuilding of the wall, only points to that which is immortal, that which is eternal, that which will never die, and that is Jesus Christ who is alive today. Everything that temple pointed to is fulfilled in you, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you died. Thank you that you rose. Thank you have access into your presence. Father, we pray that as we uh, just live life on this earth until you call us home, we will live in such a way in such a way that the life of the gospel will live out, not only in community, but in our, in our, in our workplace, in our, in our, uh, wherever we may be, so that others will see Christ. Others will see how good and glorious and great you are. So Father, help us to live on mission for your glory and our joy, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.